Welcome to Inside the Rope, a podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and today I'm bringing you another of our special editions in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm speaking with Chris Bedingfield, the founder and portfolio manager of Key Global Real Estate Fund that some of you will recognize from our previous series of podcasts where we spoke to Chris. He manages an absolute return-focused global real estate fund that has returned 11.7% per annum since inception. Chris is one of the smartest guys in the property area that I know, and I thought it would be helpful for him to speak to us about what COVID-19 means for landlords and owners of real estates, not only here in Australia, but around the world, as well as what sort of actions governments are taking to help people through that area and what that means for investors. Of course, this podcast isn't designed to be, nor is it, specific advice. I encourage everyone to listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and to seek financial advice before making any investments. Please keep your feedback coming. I've really enjoyed receiving that and it's been very, very helpful. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Stay safe and enjoy the podcast. Chris, welcome to Inside the Rope. Uh, thanks for having me. Chris, uh, our listeners will um, obviously recall uh, the previous episode that we did with you, but it might also help if you just kick off and give us a, a quick thumbnail sketch of your background and the portfolio you manage. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So my background is real estate. I have been doing it for about 30 years now in various forms. Um, I was a sell-side uh, research analyst for a number of stockbroking firms, um, uh, always covering real estate, listed real estate predominantly. But when you cover listed real estate, you sort of got to cover direct real estate as well. Uh, and then I spent uh, about a decade as an investment banker um, up my teeth during the financial crisis uh, as a banker. Um, learned a lot about credit, learned a lot about distress, which is becoming pretty valuable sort of experience in the current environment. Um, yeah, so that's that's the background and the fund we, we, we manage, which is coming up to almost six years now, we manage a, a listed, um, relatively concentrated, um, uh, we invest in listed real estate companies, global listed real estate companies. So the mandate is to, is to find the best listed real estate companies in the world. Um, we're predominantly Focus. So, you know, we're in the countries, West, you know, basically the Western developed countries. We're in the US, we're in Canada, we're in um, Europe, UK, etc. Australia. Um, uh, we're list, we, we own invest in listed and we are currency unhedged, which has been a, um, a, a benefit of late, uh, which was by design. Currency unhedged, relatively concentrated. Today we own about 24 companies around the world. Um, we invest in, you know, quite a diverse group of assets that today we've got a decent exposure to apartments, uh, self-storage facilities, uh, which is doing really well at the moment, data storage, which is doing phenomenally well at the moment, um, also exposure to industrial uh, life sciences, a little bit of healthcare. Um, yeah, so that's kind of what we do. And um, yeah, so that's sort of a, a sort of an update of the background. 
So, Chris, we're getting a series of these podcasts out to our listeners that gives them an update of what's going on during this COVID-19 pandemic, uh, which is obviously impacting everybody's lives. I see you're you're working from the home office, as am I. Um, Can you give us a description of what has happened to real estate, both here in Australia and overseas. It, it seems to me that there was a point, I want to say two and a half weeks ago almost, when Solomon Liu came out and declared that he, uh, I want to say his premier retail, which was probably not a hell of a lot of fat in that business. Um, he sort of said, well, I'm not going to be paying my rents for X amount of time, which seemed to permission everyone in the market uh, that it was okay at that point to say that uh, you're not going to pay rent. And uh, the government was also in a position, it would seem, that that uh, tenants didn't have to pay rent, whether it be residential, commercial, industrial or otherwise. Um, although not a lot of consideration was going to the owner and the fact that the owner or the landlord may have debts against that or commitments they have to make as well. But with that sort of in the background in your mind, can you give us a bit of an explanation in your words as to what's transpired over the the last four weeks since uh, the pandemic has really started to dislocate markets? Yeah, yeah. It's, It's interesting because real estate traditionally is, you know, considered to be relatively defensive and the way it's performing I guess locally and also globally is that it's um, it's struggling to hold that sort of defensive nature. Um, although when you then when you get into the weeds and, and you look at the sector, you know, the individual sectors, there are some sectors that have been incredibly robust, and some sectors that haven't been so good. And it's not so much a question, you know, part of it's a question of we won't pay rent. It's also a question of can they actually can they pay rent? Um, and, you know, to a large extent, you know, businesses, you know, businesses don't always just have, you know, save money for a rainy day. You know, no one kind of thinks about business. You know, households might do that, but it's, it's you know, businesses work on a, you know, sometimes just-in-time inventory or, or particularly services-based businesses um, don't necessarily have that sort of capacity to find their way through a pandemic. So what we're finding in real estate is some sectors um, are just being hit much, much more hard than other sectors. So the, uh, in real estate, it's very easy to generalise, but by and large, what we're seeing is communal style real estate. So real estate that is, has, you know, generally thrives on, on community and, and groupings. So that, you know, classically that is, that is retail, but it's also student accommodation, uh, senior housing, you know, those sectors um, are, are, um, are struggling. Uh, from a tourism, hospitality. <laughs> tourism, hospitality, absolutely. So all those sectors are struggling. Sectors where um, there is, you know, you know, you, you don't, it doesn't rely on that communal sort of nature. So specifically, data storage, uh, self storage, which we've got a really good exposure to there, have held up, you know, remarkably well. I mean, some of our stocks are at all time highs in this space. And um, sorry, another space sector is doing quite well is uh, life sciences, which is basically research and development office buildings that specialise in medical research and development. You can imagine, you know, that's going pretty well as well. So it's you, you kind of have to break it down a little bit. Um, and and so, 
the, the, the one thing that's really, really interesting is um, we're starting to see, you know, at, in the Northern Hemisphere, we're starting to see first quarter results. So for up to the period ended March. And the first question on all of the earnings calls for all of the landlords is how much rent has been collected. So this is coming to your question about rent collectability. And, and the market's kind of got it right in many respects. Retail, you know, in the UK, and we haven't got the retail numbers out of the US yet, but it sounds like it's anywhere between 25 and 40% of the rents have been collected, which is, which is not great. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, industrial is, is holding up really well, like 96, 97% of the rent has been collected. Uh, we, we own, um, we, own a, a, we have exposure to a sector called manufactured housing, which is really the affordable end of housing and also age-restricted age housing. They're collecting 97, 98, 99% of their rents as well. Um, and then in the middle, you've kind of got sectors like office, um, which is patchy. Some, some offices are collecting, office landlords are collecting 90% of their rent, although um, there was two office routes reported last night and it sounds like they're collecting around 65 to 70% of their rent. So, so it's really, um, it's, it, you know, the sectors are, are just performing so differently. And, and I guess that's why, you know, you've just, you know, the way we've kind of structured the portfolio is to really tilt towards those sectors that um, don't rely on that communal, communal sort of gathering aspect and also sectors where the rent collectability we expect is, is going to be pretty high. And Chris, what, what have the indexes in the property area done uh, over the last month or two? You just cut out on that question. Sorry, can you repeat that? Sorry about that. Um, what, what have the indexes done in the property area uh, since the pandemic broke out? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, it's a hard question for us to answer because we, we are index unaware. We try not to look at the index too much because it kind of does your head in. But I, I think the index in March... Uh, was down, this is the unhedged index, so it has a bit of a you know, um, currency tailwind to it. I think the index was down around 18 or 19%. And that compared to the Aussie REIT index, I think was almost down a third, 32, 33%. So it did pretty well relative to the Aussie market. Part of that was the currency, but part of it also was the Australian real estate market, listed real estate market, is, is really concentrated across just a handful of asset classes, office, retail, industrial. And then you've got the residential developers. Uh, whereas globally, you, there's so many different sectors that, as I was saying before, that, that actually are performing really well in the space. So you do have the benefit of greater diversity when you look at the global index versus the domestic index. But, but they were down roughly equal with the market. But what's interesting is post-March, so as we're sort of winding our way through April, what we're finding is that the, the REIT market, the global REIT market is not recovering. Uh, to the same extent as global equities. So global equities have, have had a really good bounce um, in, in April. And we're, 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 gonna, we're writing a paper this month explaining why we think that is. Um, but real estate, not so much. And part of that is, um, you know, is, is because there are some sectors, you know, real, the large part of real estate is, is social. And, and, you know, a good part of the index is made up of retail. A good part of the index is made up of office, hotels, tourism, and that's, that's weighing the index down relative to, um, you know, relative to equities. And Chris, what sort of um, legislation or government uh, intervention have you seen 
in Australia and around the world and how successful have they been? Well, the good, yeah, okay. Well, the good news is that there's been a strong fiscal response and, and anyone that's been reading our papers um, in the past where we've talked about MMT, we've talked about the collective profit equation, will know that, you know, we've never, we've never really believed central banks are that effective, you know, particularly in situations like this. But the fiscal response has been truly impressive. The United States now has passed legislation equal to, you know, well over 10%, of, I think it's about 12 or 13% of GDP. You've got to be careful of these numbers because sometimes, particularly in the media, they, they group quantitative easing and fiscal response together. And you really shouldn't. They're two very different things. Quantitative easing is really just asset swaps. They can open up the credit spigot a little bit at the margin. It's not that effective. What's really effective is the fiscal response. In Australia, I never thought I'd actually see this, but in Australia, we've seen a fiscal response well in excess of 10% of GDP as well. This is positive. These are very, very positive numbers. And, um, and, I, and, and I think it goes a long way to explaining why the markets have bounced the way they have. Um, what we're hearing, however, is the, the execution of some of these responses has not been um, that effective. So, for instance, in the United States, uh, $350 billion was set aside for small to medium-sized business support. The idea being that um, small, to, you know, if you run, if you run a, a restaurant or a coffee shop or something like that, you can apply for a federal government loan effectively. Which, which comes through the commercial banks. And if you keep your staff on foot, um, that loan is forgiven at the end of, you know, at the end of, you know, the lockdown. But they announced it was a first come, first serve basis. So organisations that were, you know, geared up, the, the, you know, efficiently to really go after this money got it first. And, you know, you think about your sort of your, your small to medium-sized business, they, they just don't have an army of lawyers all lined up ready to go to sort of, figure out what the rules are to get access to these potentially forgivable loans. And so, of course, the money got, you know, the money ran out straight away. And now we're hearing stories that a lot of the money went to, you know, yeah, hedge, hedge fund managers, hedge funds, um, you know, private equity funds, um, you know, people at Google can, you know, they might only have 10, 15 employees. They're all working from home, but they've got an army of lawyers all the time ready to say, okay, here's the legislation, boys. How do we apply for it? So implementation has been a problem, but the scale has been truly impressive. And, it's, and this is where the market's quite interesting in that the scale, I think the, the smarter equity investors is looking at the fiscal response and saying, okay, this is going to get us through. And I think, yeah, that's true. The other side of the equation is with speed of implementation comes mistakes. And I don't think we're quite seeing all the mistakes. What we are seeing definitely you know, the, the best lifetime data we've got is initial jobs claims out of the United States. Australia, we've got to wait for the next month to find out what happened in the month before. <laughs> but at least we, you know, in the United States, we're getting initial jobless claims. What seems to us seems to be happening is that, it, you know, this fiscal response isn't working the way that I suppose everyone kind of hoped. We're now looking at 26 million jobs or jobless. So some of those are furloughed, of course, but there's no guarantee they're going to be brought back. Um, and so, you know, keeping the whole thing together, which was the intention of the fiscal response and the government response, and you look at those initial jobless claims, they are a big worry. Yeah. And, and Chris, what in Australia have you seen uh, from the government's legislation and impact, specifically more in domestic markets? 
well, from a real estate point of view, it's 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 disheartening. Um, it's 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 um, it's very hard to get excited about Australian listed real estate or real estate generally because the the, resp- the fiscal response has been very good, but the but the at the detail, the response has been very much a case of well, landlords and tenants, you guys just work it out, and you know our economies are very complex and they're interconnected. And I think you raised it right at the beginning of this podcast, which is absolutely correct. Landlords have bills too. Um, and a lot of those bills are banks. And our banks have bills too. They, uh, you know, interest on deposits, interest on international international investors own, you know, bank debt as well. And, and, and they have to be sorted out. And a lot of commercial, you know, and part of the government response is also, well, you know, maybe the, Real estate guys need to talk to their banks and, and get some get some assistance from the banks. Well, that's fine if you've got a if you've got a bank relationship. But what happens if half your debt is held by uh, institutions or, or you know being packaged up and sold as a you know commercial mortgage backed security or and there's a whole wave of nameless faceless investors sitting behind that. Who do you negotiate with there? So there there is a risk, and hopefully I think at this stage it's a relatively small risk. But there is a risk we turn what is a health crisis into a financial crisis because if bills don't get paid and banks don't get paid um, and people start worrying about you know that side of the equation then um, we may have more to worry about down the track and that's where I think the government has kind of you know I think they've responded with the, with the purse strings really well but you know again some of the implementation some of this let the market decide kind of approach um, does have unintended consequences and, and and that's that is a concern chris we were just chatting before we set up uh this uh com- conference call that um some of behaviors in working have been changed and people are getting used to them and, and or liking them and they're more convenient um i i was talking uh in the podcast previous to this with uh, hamish douglas and we were sort of talking about what industries might be permanently disrupted, i.e. this change may have enabled some technologies which were um, dislocating uh, through digital implementation, for instance, and this has expedited that process. You know, you might call it Zoomified, if you'd like. Um, Do you think it's possible that, for instance, in a country like Australia, um, office rentals may never um, fully recover to where they were uh, do you think it's possible that residential property may have a shift? Because if someone like myself says, hey, I really only need to go in the office two days a week now instead of five, and my productivity has been shown to be the same, et cetera, um, maybe I might say, well, hey, I can have the bigger, nicer house on the coast or closer to the beach, and therefore the demand for residential property. So um, where are you... Do, a, do you think there's going to be much permanent dislocation, and if so, where? It's a, it's, it's a question we're grappling with as a business um, uh, and have been now for, well, really since it started, because, you know, part of our process is very thematic, and there could very well be some very interesting themes that come out of this. And you talked about office with, look, I come from the school of, um, you know, I remember, I remember, I remember when September 11 occurred and there was this big argument that occurred at the time that we're never going to build high rise again, right? Because they're just too easy at targets. It's very easy in the moment to extrapolate into the future 
and we can all look back now and go, well, that, that was just crazy. Right? I remember during the financial crisis that you know, no one was ever going to buy a home again because, you know, just what a terrible asset class and everyone's getting wiped out. And of course, that turned out not to be true as well. So I'm very hesitant to, to you know, get caught up in the emotion of the moment and say, well, the world is going to change as a result of this. Um, having said that, it's, it's, it, you sh we should be alive to, you know, those risks. And I think the big ones for us at the moment is office. Um, I think that, um, and maybe I'm just speaking from a personal point of view, but I, I, uh, I think that there is some comfort in the idea of, of, of not having to go to the office every day, but still being just as productive. And, and, that, will, and that may have an incremental impact on uh, incremental demand. I don't think it changes valuations that much because at the end of the day, our valuation approach to say office is we always, we always reference valuation to replacement costs. So this, this whole um, environment isn't gonna change the cost to build an office building. So valuations aren't necessarily gonna change. What it means is that um, at the moment, most office values are way above replacement costs. So what it means is values are gonna fall. And the same with households as well. It's not so much going to change the value because you know household demand is driven by household formation and household formation is driven by population growth. So at the margin, you could say in Australia we are going to have a, ne you know, a negative shock for house values and, and house prices because um, you know we've been important. You know our population has been growing one and a half percent per annum because we've been happy, happy importers of cap of labour of people of, of immigration. And that's going to change. That is definitely going to change. And so that, you know, ongoing demand for housing is actually going to be quite negative. Um, so I don't really see the po any, you know, near-term positives for housing at all. Um, in fact, I, I see that, that 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 spigot of people coming in all the time being turned off is going to have quite a negative impact on Australian housing um, for the medium term. But when again, when it comes to valuation, it doesn't really affect long-term valuation because that's always anchored in and around the cost of production. But what is interesting um, is within the housing market, you may see a derate of the Mossmans, the Turaks, the uh, you know the, the the Bondis relative to um, you know the coastal properties because we could you know here we are on Zoom we're having a chat we're, oh, yeah, I could be anywhere <laughs> having this conversation and instead of being here in the suburbs I could be looking out on the beach somewhere so there could be there could be those you know internal D rates re rates um, but yeah I, I I I resist a little bit about these big structural changes in value because it's still going to cost the same amount to build an office building. We're still going to need them. I still do believe we're going to need them. Um, and it's still going to cost the same to build an apartment block <laughs> and a house. It might cost more because of social distancing going forward and slowing the development process. But um, uh, within those sectors, there will be shifts. And, and obviously, we haven't touched on retail. Um, and retail is, uh, you know, the acceleration of online retail from this would, um, could be a real headwind. Excuse my dogs there. So I think that we've got a delivery person. Um, we'll soldier on. Chris, um, you, last time we had you on the podcast, we, uh, you, you were very good in predicting interest rates heading to or towards zero, um, which, was, which was very good. Um, looking forward, how do you see the economic uh, outlook going forward? There seems to be a debate 
going on between, you know, whether it's going to be a V-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, or, you know, uh, uh, something much closer to a depression. What, what is your view of that specifically for Australia? And I guess, you know, after oh. that, the, the broader world. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's very hard to tell, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, I was just reading an article on Bloomberg this morning, um, you know, what's life like in Wuhan today? And it's pretty, it's pretty sobering reading. Um, you know, you've got, you've got, you know, even though people are sort of out and about, the restaurants are still empty, the shopping centres are still empty. You know, people have actual themselves and they're going out to and, and getting coffee. And um, interestingly, car sales are up because no one wants to be on public transport. Um, look, it's really hard to predict how it's all going to pan out until we get a vaccine. And, and I don't know when that's going to be. The one thing that I am worried about from a macro point of view, and yes, we did predict, we, we predicted interest rates in Australia would eventually go to zero. We didn't predict, obviously, a pandemic, but structurally, we had, the reason we predicted interest rates are going to go to zero is we had an economy, we had a political system that was scared to death of deficit spending, which meant all of the, all of the macroeconomic uh, heavy lifting was left to the central bank. And, you know, central bank basically has one tool. It's, it's obviously interest rates. And when you outsource all of the macro to the central bank that only has interest rates, then, you know, you, you're always going to get shocks and downturns and just rates just had to progressively get lower and lower and lower. So, so you're talking about the political inability of the government to run a deficit and go back to an elect, electorate and say, we're going to run a, a deficit. They had to go with we're strong on the economy and we, we're managing a surplus type of thing. Yeah, yeah, it, you know, the narrative, exactly right. You know, we have a surplus, therefore things are good. And, you know, I come from the MMT School of Economics, you know, government surplus is a non-government deficit. So whenever the government tries to run a surplus, um, the non-government sector, which includes houses and businesses and external, that has to run a deficit, which is why household debt's so high, because, you know, we've had a government that's tried to be balancing the budget. When the government tries to live within its means, everyone has to live beyond their means. It's, you know, it's the other side of the equation. And but what's now this is where it becomes interesting. So what's become really clear, you know, people sometimes use the wrong language. They're saying, oh, we're printing money or all of which is nonsense. The government's always had the fiscal capacity to spend as many Australian dollars as it wants. It's, we're not constrained by dollars and we don't need a printing press to do that. It's just the mechanics of the way the Treasury interacts with um, the central, central bank and the way the central bank interacts with the banks. Now, I'm not going to go into the details. I just encourage people to read our MMT papers if they want to understand how that works. But what's really important is what's the political implications and the economic implications at the other end of this? How often are people going to say or believe when the government says we can't have a national disability um, health scheme because we just can't afford it as a nation? People are going to say, hey, overnight we, we, we spent $200 billion to get through this pandemic. Who's going to believe that story now? Who's going to believe that we, we can't have better infrastructure? Who's going to believe we can't have, you know, better roads and better bridges and better healthcare systems? No one's going to believe that story after this. Now, and I'm not talking about just Australia. I'm talking about globally, right? Um, you know, you have Bernie Sanders in the United States running around promising Medicare for all, which I think costs half a trillion dollars. And everyone went, so well, half a trillion dollars, we can't afford that pandemic comes along, they spend two and a half trillion. <laughs> so the political debate's going to change. And this is important for markets. And I'll tell you why, because, because we've now flushed the system with, you know, uh, 
the government deficit is equal to non-government surplus. So the non-government surplus is ballooning from this deficit spending. And from an MM, going back to the MMT school, the MMT school says, yes, we're not constrained by money. What we are constrained by is resources, real resources. And if we have a, supply, a collapse in supply, which is what's happening, and we have a bunch of people coming out of their caves at the end of this with a bunch of money, some people won't, some people have, will. I'm not talking about distribution, I'm talking from a macro point of view, they're coming out with a bunch of money. Bunch of money with not a lot of supply. You may get inflation again, something that we've all been, people have been worried about for a long time, but this could really come. And I, you know, th this is something, if we get something that even is even close to a V-shaped recovery, you could see a bunch of people with a bunch of money and a whole lot of businesses that may have closed because they couldn't just make it through to the other side. So you'll have a lack of real resources and a bunch of money, lots of money chasing few resources. Well, we know what that means. And, um, and I think it's a risk. It is a risk that no one's, at least in our world, I can't really see people thinking about it. Um, and, and, if, and if that happens, and Chris, that's where, massive do you, where do you want your money in the economy if that happens in assets? Assets. Or things things that hard are going assets. to appreciate, yeah. Hard, hard assets, yeah. It's it's not soft assets, it's hard assets. If we wrote a paper, you know, I can be accused of, you know, you know sort of bias. Talking the, the book, yeah. Talking the book, yeah. Talking the business, right? But um, the data is really clear. The last time we had really high inflation, you know, globally was in the 70s and 80s. And... Um, you know, it was, it was routinely 10, 11, 12, 13, up to 15% per annum. And if you look at the total real returns, um, it, again, the data's great in the United States, so we looked at the United States. You look at total real returns on real estate, real after inflation, 7, 7.5% per annum, equities, 2% per annum. Um, and the, re and the, the, the fundamental reason why, if you have high inflation, real estate's good, is it comes back to our framework um, if office towers cost $100 a day to, today to build and you have super high inflation, well, guess what? They're going to cost $200 to build years down the track. And prices sort of... So you you get that natural protect, protection by owning hard assets. Now, um, and I would say, I would argue, you know, maybe even, you know, certain infrastructure that's linked to inflation and, you know, those sorts of hard assets are, are going to be um, relative, you know, relatively well... Uh, support now in the short term they'll probably get demolished because if you know us interest rates go up to nine ten percent you have the knee-jerk reaction of particularly investors who say well sell yield sell yield sell yield so it'll be a bumpy ride if you hold hard if you're patient you'll, you'll come through the other end um preserving your real purchasing power Chris, thank you very much. You've taken us uh, through the real estate landscape as it is uh, through this pandemic. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you taking time out from what is a busy time in markets to join us at Inside the Rope. Stay safe and thanks for joining us. Yeah, you too. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.
Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.